Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man who has always been great at spelling bees, but terrible at spelling other words. It's Dale. <laughs> What's going on, man? What's happening with you, dude? Oh, man. Oh, just trying to stay dry in this damn all this rain. Yeah, we've had just a little bit of rain. It's been a damn rainy, rainy I mean, these last couple of days. Is it going to tease us, or is it going to start raining? I think it's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I hope it don't start if this is a damn tease. That's it. Everything's underwater. You got any shout-outs for us today, bud? Uh, we got one. I just want to shout out to my buddy Tyler. He's been pushing us to do this episode for, for a long time. Tyler. So uh, he listens every week. He, he's always on me about getting stuff, make sure we're getting stuff out and why we're being slack. But, you know, we get it when we can. A little slack this week because I may or may not have been hungover for my birthday the other night, so we had to put it off an extra day. But we're getting it today, and we're going to get one out for Tyler. So today is for you, Tyler. Tyler, this is for you, dude. <laughs> All right, Dale, we're going to get into our episode. We're not going to mess around. Let's rock it. All right. We've got a serial killer this week that we're going to talk about, and this is a local for us yeah we've been uh we, we stayed local for a while and then we we jumped out a little bit and yeah, we skip around a little bit we come back home a little well right down the road a little bit yeah about 30 40 miles down the road yes and this is around chesney south carolina mm-hmm. woodruff area yeah down near sparkle city yeah sparkle yeah spartanburg spartanburg or the sparkle city yep and this is todd christopher colip colip yep he was born todd christopher samsell Right. On March the 7th, 1971, in Florida. But he was raised in South Carolina and in Georgia. At the same time? Well, not at the same time, but <laughs> I guess over a period of time where he was during his raising years. <laughs> now He was getting rose. Yeah, he was uh, getting he was uh, getting raised. Okay. And his, his mom and dad divorced when he was two years old. And his mother got custody of him. And she married another man. Uh, about a year later. Right. And this man, his name was Carl Colehip, and he adopted Todd. Yes, giving him his... Took his name. His surname. Yep. I think Carl had two other kids from a previous marriage, and they were uh, step-siblings to Todd. Right. Todd was troubled childhood. Yeah, his stepdad used to beat the shit out of him all the time, I think. Yeah. He was known to get aggressive in, like, nursery school and uh, destroy... I guess kids' toys and things like that. Yeah, I figured it's one of those, it didn't get my way, if you can't have it, I'm not going to have it either. Yeah. And about the age of nine, that's when he started having counseling. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Isn't it? Yeah, he was described as being explosive and even preoccupied with sexual content. That's all early. At a you know, young age. Yeah. You know, and that's when he started with his cruelty to animal things, like shooting dogs with BB guns and then... Even one time he wanted a gerbil, and they told him, well, you already have a goldfish not getting a gerbil, so he just poured a bottle of Clorox in the goldfish and fixed that problem. And watched it die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he ever got his gerbil. Uh, I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt it. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. You know, and a lot of serial killers start out with cruelty to animals and mm-hmm. stuff, so they can start there and work their way up. Yep. And even Todd's uh, father even told him that the only emotion that his son had was anger that's crazy the only emotion he was capable of was anger mm. no joy or happy or anything well you know from right off the bat he's just getting beat all the time and then mm-hmm. you know and put down and don't get nothing he wants and then blowing off and then you know even uh i think uh bought him a, a new bedroom suit one time and he didn't like it so he just took a hammer and totally destroyed it yeah 
Todd spent about three and a half months in a Georgia psychiatric hospital as an inpatient because he couldn't get along with other kids. So this is really early. Yeah. Like 10 years old or something. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's pretty sad, actually. Yeah. But, but I mean, damn, he must have been really destructive, you know, because if, if that's your only choice. Yeah. And Todd had a almost like a longing to get to know his biological father. Well, I don't blame him. Well, you know, I mean, I, I guess for the beating part, I don't know what the rest of them went on, but he just probably felt like, you know, since he, you know, he probably had a, a vision in his head of how it would be to be with his real dad. Yeah. You know, and probably thought his real dad wanted him as much as he wanted him. You yeah. Know? But in 1983, Todd was sent to live with his biological father in Arizona. Right. After his mom and stepfather separated. So how'd that work out? Well, he went to move in with his father, and he took his father's surname back. Hmm. Went back to Samsel. And he started working a lot of little local jobs. And he also took interest in his father's hobby of collecting guns and weapons and telling him to blow up things and make bombs. Yeah. That's a good thing to teach a kid that just got out of psych ward. And because even after all this, their their relationship and everything deteriorated due to his father being absent all the time. Just, yeah, he was rather, he'd rather be out running with the women than, than worry about this kid. He ain't yeah, doing. they said his father had a lot of girlfriends. Yeah. Mm. And now he's got this kid cramping his style. Yeah, and uh, that's when Todd expressed you know t- a, a desire to go live back with his mother. Right. She didn't want him either. No. So now you got this childhood and rage that you only way you thought you'd get out of it was go to your dad's and you get to your dad's and he don't want you either and now you can't go home yeah so he's just yeah he's got all kinds of things going on in his head probably mm-hmm. now is this time deal on november the 25th of 1986 todd was 15 years old and he kidnapped a 14 year old girl that's when they lived in tempe arizona and i think they were a neighbor of theirs like three houses down or something yeah and then he really liked her but she just wanted to be friends and then she kind of said that she had a crush on another little boy it was a friend with of him uh, yeah a mutual friend oh yeah. yeah so this yeah that was not good no uh-uh. so this is when he kidnapped this 14 year old girl and he threatened her with a 22 caliber revolver yep and he took her back to his home tied her up duct taped her mouth shut and he raped her yep Several different ways. Yeah. And after that... You know, he, he actually showed, he shot the gun where he tried to, didn't he? I think uh, it did. It misfired uh, or something. Misfired, yeah. Which is kind of weird for a revolver, but... Yeah, so kind of saved her there. Mm-hmm. After all this, he walked her home, and he threatened to kill her younger siblings if she told anyone about it. Right. She had, like, two younger... Yeah. Yeah, yeah she had younger... They were really young. One was, like, six and one something else, I think. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, he had threatened to kill them if she, if she was uh, t- to say anything. Mm-hmm. But luckily for uh, for her, time she got back home, wasn't long that the cops had showed up. Yeah. Because one of her younger siblings had actually called the cops and said that she was missing. Yeah. So and then she went ahead and told what happened. And Todd was charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and committing a dangerous crime against children. Yes, and then went to his house, knocked on the door, he opened the door, had a gun in his hand, and he's and like. All yeah. he wanted to know was how much trouble I am and how many years am I going to get. Yeah, that's all he wanted to know. No, no emotion, like you say. You know, yeah. it's always just straight plain, mm-hmm. which is really weird. And just a year later, in 1987, he pled guilty to the kidnapping charge and other charges, and the other charges were dropped. And he was sentenced to 15 years in prison and registered as a sex offender. Right. And according to the court records, 
Todd was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and he also had an IQ of 118, which is just a... It's above a, average, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's another little... It's kind of weird how a lot of serial killers, killer, serial killers have uh, high or above average IQs. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about a bunch, but the last few we've done, that kind of stands oh, out. Yeah. And the judge in this case said Todd was very bright and should be advanced academically, but behaviorally, emotionally dangerous and likely could not be rehabilitated. That ain't good. No, and Todd's probation officer wrote a similar description in the court papers and added that he felt the world owed him something. And Todd's attorney uh, later went on to say that while defending him, he did not believe his client would go on to harm others in the future. <laughs> of course, the judge and everybody else did. Yeah. You know, basically, if, if the judge would have had his way, we wouldn't be talking about this guy today. Mm-hmm. And even during his imprisonment, Dale, the first couple of years, he got into a lot of trouble. Oh, well. While in prison. Well, so he's so young. Yeah. So he was 15 and he got sentenced for 15 years? Yeah, but um, after 14, he got released. But I think uh, that was for time served while, you know, trial was going on. So he got... He got a year knocked off, but he was still in jail for during the trial. So I guess time served. Yeah. Now, it was in August of 2001. We're jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, Todd was released from prison after serving 14 years, like we said. And he moved to South Carolina, where his mother was living. Oh. Imagine that. Welcome home. Yep. And Dale, during his time in prison, he attended and graduated from Central Arizona College with a bachelor's degree in computer science. Oh, while he was in jail? Yeah, while he was in prison. Okay. From January 2002 to November 2003, he worked as a graphic designer for uh, Seven Sons. is a graphics company in Spartanburg. And he began studying at the Greenville Technical College in 2003. So he's pretty smart. He's gathering up some degrees here. Yeah. And he later transferred to the University of South Carolina Upstate the following year, and graduated in 2008 with a bachelor's degree in business administration and marketing. So he's... He's piling them up. Yeah, so he's getting some education. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, he was still a registered sex offender. Well, I think so. And despite being a sex offender, he was able to get a real estate license on June 30th, 2006. So I'm assuming he was lying on some kind of application. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Because so, I'm pretty sure you, you can't do both of those. <laughs> no, and they obviously didn't do a background check. Right. He was able to build a firm and had several dozen in his employment. Mm. So he had a pretty big firm. Yeah. And he was even recognized as one of the top-selling agents in South Carolina. So he's stacking up some cash now. Yeah. And also during all this time, Dale, he became a pilot. He got a pilot license. Damn. And owned several properties out of state. So now he's mobile. Yep, he's moving around. He's going all over the country. So you think he's uh, really straightened up? He went to school you know, after all that trouble, you know, and he did his time. He got out and went to school, and he's got all these these degrees and started his own business. He's got his own realty company. He's got a couple properties under his belt and got his airplane pilot license, so he's mm-hmm. just a outstanding citizen right now. Yep. And in May of 2014, he purchased nearly 100 acres of land. In the community of Moore, South Carolina. Yeah, it's a pretty big tract. Yep, and it was for $305,000. And he put a fence around that property. That was a, was a cheap one, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> uh, $80,000 fence. $80,000 fence. Wow. 
That's a lot of fence, though, if you think about going around 100 acres. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a customer who sold her home to Colehead remembered him as extremely outgoing and professional and even said that he would often talk about his firearms and sometimes made sexual innuendos during their conversations. Yeah, I'm sure. So now he's getting some power under him. He's got some money, mm-hmm. you know. But they said, you know, when Todd was in his office, you know, he would be condescending to all of his workers, and he would even go back in his office and watch porno on his computer. Yeah. Y'all go do this. I got something to do. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Dale. We're going to go back in time just a little bit, and we're going to go back to November 6, 2003. And this was when a guy by the name of Noel Lee – he was a frequent customer of the Superbike Motorsports. And this was a motorcycle shop in Chesney, South Carolina. Right. Noel went in that day. He was taking, I think. Uh, Some event tickets. He had called from home. He had got home, and uh, he was friends with everybody down there. And he had, he would, had called ahead and said uh, he was going to come by and drop off some event tickets for something going on at the Bilo Center, which is like the, the big arena in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, he said it'd be about 30 minutes. He was going to jump in the shower. And then uh, he talked to a Beverly guy who was a bookkeeper there. And uh, she said, come on down. We'll all be here. So just come on when you can. So he had hung up and then took a shower and then drove down there. And said it was only about 30 minutes. Yeah, but when uh, Noel Lee got there, Dale. They was over there. Yeah, they were there, but they were. he found them all dead. Yeah. He found, when he first got there, he found Scott Ponder, who was the owner of the Superbike motorsports shop he was 30 years old found him dead in the parking lot yep along with a service manager brian lucas yep they were in the parking lot both shot to death yep and brian was more like in the doorway half in the shop half out i think and i think uh, i read too at first he thought they were pulling a prank on him yeah he didn't know what was going on Mm -mm. they thought he was till he seen the blood and then he's like "Mm -hmm." yep and he went in and used the phone there in the shop yeah. To call 911. Which is kind of weird. And we've got that 911 call right here. Where's your emergency? It's at a Superbike Motorsports. Okay, and what's the problem? Apparently, everybody's been shot up here. Everybody's laying down. We're in a pool of blood. His mama's been shot, the mechanic's been shot, and the owner. Yeah, and I think they, they did question him because he had a cell phone, you know. So why did you use that? But why did you use the phone there at the shop? Yeah. Because you basically would have to step over a body to go in. Mm-hmm. But like he said, I'm sure he didn't know what the hell was going on. And uh, also, mechanic Chris Sherbert, he was in the back. Yeah. He had been shot. And he was actually slump, slumped over one of the motorcycles. Yeah, he had been working on it. And, and this is a pretty good size building. It's like a 10,000 square foot building. So, mm-hmm. and partitioned off, you know, like with the showroom and then offices and bathrooms kind of in the middle and then in the back was the garage where they worked on all the bikes yep and also murdered was uh like dale said bookkeeper beverly guy and she was um, scott ponder's mother right and she was 52 yep and all four died with multiple gunshot wounds yep but investigators believe that the gunman armed with a pistol entered the shop from the back and killed chris sherbert as he worked they they thought they killed him first yep and then went in and killed Beverly Guy coming out of the restroom, I think. And then that's when I – it's been reported that Scott Ponder and Brian Lucas were trying to get out of the building, and he shot both of them. 
Yeah. As they were leaving the building. They had no leads on this, Dale. They didn't know. Didn't know nothing. No, this was 2003, and they didn't have a clue on who could have done this. They thought it was Noel Lee at first. Yeah, because uh, they thought maybe that phone call that he had made to see if everybody's going to be there was maybe he was calling to make sure whoever he was who he had he was going to kill was going to be there. Yep, and so. they they even thought it might have been drug related, but they found a uh, some cash there on the counter. Yeah, bullet full, you know, because uh, I don't know how long at this point this place had been in operation, but it was a very successful business. Even in his first year open, he had like over a million dollars in sales, and it had went up from there on out. Mm-hmm. So there was plenty of money and stuff from guns, and I think in the office there was reported there was some guns and stuff, and nothing was missing that they could see. Yep, so they ruled it out as being drug-related. Right, or a robbery. Yep, so they were trying to find any lead from you know anybody or Anywhere. any kind any yep. kind of suspect and even family members they weren't above being you know considered suspects oh no and also dale there was a man and woman that was seen in the dealership about the time that the murders were taking place but they were also uh, known as drug users but they were ruled out too yeah because you know if it was them that stack of money wouldn't be left and they would yeah they, they took whatever they had right and Detectives looked into the lives of the victims, trying to find something that would, you know, lead something them. to explain, yeah, you know, what the hell's going on here. And like Brian, Scott, and Beverly, you know, they didn't have any bad blood between them or anyone else. They seemed to just be good, small town people. Yeah. Well, Scott and Brian were best friends. Yeah. And Scott started the business, and then uh, him and Brian were very active in the the two wheel sports stuff and. They both knew it inside and out, and that's why he went ahead and hired his best friend as service manager, and that's why they were working together. Yep. Yeah. Now, the police, like we said, the police always examine the victim's spouse. And Melissa, this was Scott Ponder's widow. Right. She was no exception. And she was called into the police station several times Mm -hmm. in the following months. And there was one visit there where she she had had a newborn son. Yeah, seven month old. Yeah. And she changed his diaper there in the police station. Well, they took that diaper out of the trash. Yeah, without her knowing that yeah. she left. Yeah. And they took DNA samples from it. And Dale, a little while later, they called her back in. Right. Well, she went in. She didn't really know why they were calling her in. She went in. And she thought maybe that they had actually found a perpetrator. And uh, she said that she was really nervous about going in because she was afraid that it might be somebody that they knew, and she just didn't know how she would handle that. Well, when she got there, that is not the reason they called her down there. They called her down there to tell her that uh, the DNA from her child that they got from that testing that diaper did not match her husband Scott's DNA. Yep. And they're saying that that baby's not his. So yep. they they were saying, so you got something to tell us? Um, you have an affair with somebody else whose baby is this exactly and running her through the meal and she's like there's, there's no way <laughs> and uh they didn't really know whose it was but they're saying it, it definitely was not his that's what they were saying yeah yeah and uh so she went through a lot of stuff over that man. yeah and she's she said some pretty bad words to him too from what i've read yeah but yeah. and then she went back down there again and she said i don't believe it you're gonna you know if you wanted dna i would give it to you i have nothing to hide and made them swab the baby right there in front of them. She said, you know, do it now and seal it, but do it in front of me. Yeah. I, I don't believe this. Y'all are, I don't know what the hell y'all are doing here. but something. Let her see them swab right. and seal it. Yeah. And so they did, and they sent it off, and it came back, and it still didn't match. It still didn't match. 
So, so now she's starting to freak out a little bit. In, yeah. in one of her interviews, she said, you know, that that actually she had to have some help from uh, OBGYN to help get pregnant. So she's thinking, damn, is this really my baby? Did is I get the wrong kid? Because yeah. I know I have not had an affair. I don't know what's going on here, but something is going on. Mm-hmm. And I think it was at this point that she went ahead and lawyered up because she didn't know what the hell. She's like, I don't know why y'all are trying to, trying to pull here, but this is not right. But she'd had a call from one of the other police officers saying that she believed her story well she was uh when you when she got all upset of when she said when she's going to go talk to her lawyer she was going to go have scott exhumed yes yeah, and prove it right there she said mm-hmm. something is wrong yeah i don't know what the hell y'all doing but i'm going to go have him exhumed and that's when she got the call from the one that said just hang on let's see what's going on here i believe you but at least give me the chance to check into it. And if we're wrong, I will apologize to you. Yeah. So she gave them a little bit of time there. Yeah. And what they done, they uh, crossed uh, Scott Ponder's DNA with Beverly Guy, his mother. And it didn't match. It didn't match. So they knew they had a mixed match somewhere. Right. And I think all got, got this all started was Scott's ex-wife had told the police that she didn't think that baby was his either because they had tried a lot when – they were married and, and they never could have a kid. Mm. So once they got that little bit of information and then this DNA didn't match, they were just full bore on this. So, but like you said, once they tried to match it up with his own mom, which, you mm. know, was no question and still didn't match, they knew something was wrong, bad somewhere. And just to clear one thing up, we've heard in several places that they accused her of uh, having an affair with. Uh, someone else they they told her who they thought it was yeah they had some pictures of one of the uh it was a friend of the family was was a quite wealthy guy they had been at their house before and they were just a, it was just a picture of him and her hugging but she says nothing you know just he was a friend close friend of the house or of the family and uh they wanted to know who this guy was yeah and she's like come on people yeah give me some credit there's no way that uh, this mm-hmm. is his baby yeah but yeah, they never told her who they thought the baby was. Yeah, they didn't know. I, heard, I, heard, I actually heard her say that. Yeah, I did too. So she. Yeah, they didn't come out and say, "Well, we know what so and so is because we 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 matches their DNA." He didn't. They didn't know. Yeah. But they got it straightened out, and she was not considered a suspect anymore. Right. So what had happened is when they they checked the DNA, the DNA was actually Brian Lucas's. Yeah. And then whether it got cross contaminated in in the parking lot or in the lab or in the police results we don't know and they don't know but that's what had happened so that dna that they were trying to match to the baby was uh brian lucas's and that's why it wasn't matching but they were those uh, the two bodies were found pretty close to each other so whether the it was uh, swabbed and put in a, a wrong name tube or mislabeled or, or, or something. mislabeled in the lab it could have been anywhere they don't know where it happened but that's what it was and mm-hmm. And uh, she said that uh, she did make the sheriff go on TV and, and apologize and say that, that it was wrong. He said, she goes, you know, even even though I was clear there, stuff happened. Like he said that uh, Scott's grandmother had had terminal cancer, and even she died before they got all this straightened out. And she died believing that that wasn't her grand great-grandchild. It caused a lot of problems for her. And, uh, yeah, and said even she, instead of leaving all her stuff and their land and whatever, all her stuff to her inheritance to, to the kid, yeah, she gave it to one of her sisters that she'd never even seen at all, you know. So, yeah, and even Melissa said she didn't care about that material stuff, but it was just a, you know, she she died thinking that this wasn't really her, her grandchild. Yeah, which that's, is, that's sad. You know, it's a lot of stuff that... And, you know, especially they were just in a lot of people in the neighborhood. And she said, you know, she was even, 
you know, felt like she was out of place at, at that funeral, you know, because everybody was just looking at her like she had done something. And she like an outcast, yeah, yeah. She was just been an outcast. She didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Sure was sad. Yeah. All because of somebody screwed up some lab results. Somewhere. Exactly. I think even the, at this point in the family, because they weren't coming up with anything, and it had been a long time, and they had hired a private investigator to come in and see, you know, look at it with a fresh set of eyes. And, you know, they had already ruled out robbery and, and you know, all that stuff. Or any family member. And family members, you know, and stuff. And they just couldn't find anything. And he came in and looked it over, and he said that he pretty much guaranteed it was probably a, a disgruntled customer. And he was saying, you know, they should go back through the books and when, you know, cross with the customer names and, and crime records and this kind of stuff and see if he could find anybody that looks fishy because it sure looked like maybe that would be the only reason in his mind that they could see that somebody would come in and kill everybody in the building and not take a thing. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. Now, getting back to talking about Todd Coldeb a little bit, Dale, he went to this Waffle House that was in Roebuck, South Carolina. It was right near there where, where he was living. And he would go there quite a bit. He went there a lot, and he was kind of creepy. Yeah. (laughs) And even one of the waitresses there, her name was Megan Coxie. Yeah. Even when he Todd would go in, she would have uh, one other workers there take his order. Yeah, she'd even have, you know, because I guess if you don't know what a Waffle House is, it's just like a small diner where you sit there and you can pretty much, you can see everything. There's no back kitchen. It's all we cook them right there in front of you, and they just lean over the counter and give you stuff or whatever. But which is you, great. <laughs> I see you got a Waffle House cup there, Doc. Right. So uh, you know uh, it's probably a breakfast place, but you can get anything, and it's a uh, three sixty five twenty four seven. It never closes, and mm-hmm. I don't even know if they got locks on the doors. They never close. But anyway, um, you go in, and they usually a lady will come over and take your order, and then they have a guy cooking, and they just take your order and turn around and basically yelling to order and i don't know how the heck they keep up with it but they do a pretty good job of it. anyway but anyways they said that the most of the girls especially uh megan had really got the creeps from this guy and he'd come in a lot so it got to where even time he would come in that the the guy that was cooking would stop cooking and go over and take his order so they didn't have to go talk to him mm-hmm. so it must be pretty damn creepy because you know them waffle house chicks have seen some wild stuff oh they three see or four every- o'clock in the morning they see everything coming and going in that place <laughs> But now Megan and her husband, Johnny Coxie, they were frequent drug users. Yeah. They had an addiction. Yep, they had a problem. But um, One of the problems was they had the money. Yeah. <laughs> and, but Todd offered them a job right. to come to his property there in um, Moore, South Carolina, to do some work around the place. Now, this is the 100-acre property, right? Yeah, the 100-acre property. Now, he does have a, a house about eight miles from his property, but this and it's, uh, I guess, in a neighborhood or something. But So he don't live on this property. It's just a, a basically a 100-acre wooded property, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And for them to, like, trim stuff, trim bushes and different things. Yeah, do some, some underbrush. He did have a, a barn. And when I say barn, I'm not meaning, like, the old red barn that pops in your head. It was a pretty nice two-story building, you know, and it had solar solar power to it. It didn't have – there was no power on the property. But he had like a solar box and some other stuff to it, so it was a pretty nice building. And he, I think he wanted him to come in and uh, trim up the underbrush and basically clean up, clean up around his buildings and mm-hmm. stuff. Is what he wanted him to do. Yep. At least that's what he told him. Okay, so when they got on the property out there, his intentions was uh, finally going to come out. He didn't really care about them cutting the underbrush or not. They weren't going to trim nothing up, were they? No. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And later he would tell authorities that Johnny pulled a knife on him, but we don't believe none of this. So anyway, he. 
he just pulled his pistol and killed Johnny right there on the spot and shot him, I don't know, three or four times in the chest. That's mm-hmm. usually his MO. And uh, once he uh, he killed him, he uh, took Megan and locked her up. He had, a, you know, those uh, big metal storage, like a container, like a – and big green storage metal containers. Yeah, like you know, like you see on a semi truck or like a stack up on a boat or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that kind of storage container. He had one of those and it was kind of painted a little bit camouflage. Not really. It was had some brown brown paint on it, but it was green, kind of set back in the woods a little bit from his other building. Mm-hmm. And really, what he had it for was he had it full of uh, um, like rations and water and uh, ammo, a ton of ammunition and stuff like that. But anyway. So what he did is he, once he killed uh, Johnny, he took Megan and chained her up in that in that storage building. Yeah. And uh, he kept her several days, but she she he said that she was a real mental case, and this is all coming from him. So because really, I'm sure nobody really knows what happened except just going by his account. That he took her in there, you know, and told her, you know, to chill out, to chill out, and she was just being real uh, bipolar and flipping out and she'd be okay for a second and then go crazy and he's like just calm down and well i wonder why you're being chained up <laughs> yeah like i said this is coming from him so uh she wanted so he he left he chained her up and he left and went and got her some food and he went and got her some little caesar's pizza and some dr pepper yum yeah and when she said quote i hate that shit <laughs> so anyway <laughs> but anyway that's apparently what she wanted so he went and got her food and brought her back and then i'm sure he done whatever he wanted to do to her details are kind of sketchy here so i won't really say and uh because she's not here to talk about it right yeah she can't say either way so uh, anyway um said that she wanted some cigarettes so he went and bought her cigarettes and he in a lot of this i'm saying has come from his uh his interviews and you can find those on youtube but uh he went and bought her some newport reds said he went in to get them said i don't smoke don't know nothing about it so they asked me if i wanted a pack or a carton i don't know so he, he said i bought her a carton so I bought her that in the lighter and took it back and gave it to her and smoke up and chained her up and, and left. And he said the problem was that she was crazy. She would act all fine and stuff. And he was trying to figure out what to do with her the whole time. You mm-hmm. know, he didn't, he didn't want to kill her. He didn't know what to do. He had said that, uh, Johnny pulled a knife on him. And his story was that, uh, when it's, once they got there, they decided they was going to rob him. They had seen some, the guy that had a lot of money in a car they couldn't afford. Yep. Because they didn't have a car. Because and they had a drug addiction. They had a drug addiction, and he his story is that Johnny pulled a knife on him, and they was both in on it. Cause he said that uh, she didn't act like she was shocked or anything. We did it, and he said once uh, he pulled a knife on me, I put two in his chest and dropped him. Mm-hmm. So now whether it happened or not, I highly doubt it. But that that was his story. So anyway, he he had said that he, what he was going to do was give her. He said he told her that I was going to give you four thousand dollars. And I'm going to take you to somewhere in Tennessee and drop you out. You go right, and I'll go left. That's mm-hmm. what we're going to do. So she was pretty pretty thrilled about, you know, the thing that she might make it out of this alive. So a couple of days go by, and uh, he said he would go over there, and then she would flip out and set stuff on fire. And said and she was setting stuff on fire inside that building. He said, I don't know how she didn't suffocate herself. I would open the door and just smoke bowling out of her. And you got to remember, this thing slammed full of Ammo. ammo yeah. yeah so if it would have went off it would have been a hell of a bomb but anyway he said he just finally he couldn't figure out what to do and he was going to do that he said but you know at this time he's got a, a girlfriend and the girlfriend's got a daughter he just couldn't find a time he said this is getting near winter time it was some bad weather and he couldn't just find a time to make this long trip and let her go so he was having to put her off for a couple of days so he went back again another time and she had set stuff on fire again 
And he said, finally, he just had enough of it, so he just unbuckled her and told her, come on, it's time to go. And as soon as he walked outside, he shot her in the back of the head and put her in a tractor and took it down there and buried her on property down there with uh, Johnny. Yep. So that's what happened to her. And all that's that's from his side. From his story, yeah. yeah. And it, it's probably pretty accurate because Todd was pretty arrogant. Yeah. And it's it's really creepy. If you listen to that, he just talks, and it's just like just like you buttered his bread or something. It, it ain't. I don't know. It's just he's just so monotone. Not really monotone, but straightforward. It's like it, I don't know. It's just like telling you what I had for supper or something. You mm-hmm. know, like it's just everyday conversation about the weather. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty creepy. So yeah, now all this stuff going on with uh, Megan Coxie and her husband Johnny. This went on around December the twenty second, two thousand fifteen. Right. And Todd had reported killing them around christmas time or the day after christmas so you know that's just like we said from his point of view well that kind of goes along with the story where he could get away you know yeah now whether he was ever going to let her go or not the way he said in his story the reason that he was thinking about letting her go first he didn't really know what to do with her but he was also saying well they only know i'm a real estate agent they don't know my name they don't know where i live because i hadn't been to his house just on that that property. property she didn't really know where that property was so I could take her somewhere and drop her out, and there's no way that she would know, you know, who I was, or she couldn't call and say so and so got me or whatever, or take them to, or my even house. how to get back there. Right. So that was a, in his head. That was a, a that was an avenue to, to go until he quote said she pissed him off because she kept trying to burn shit up. Yep. Now, Dale. Almost a year later, this was in August the 31st of 2016. Uh, Kayla Brown. And her boyfriend, Charlie Carver, they were hired by Todd Colehip to do some uh, work around the property. Yeah, I think uh, she had been um, introduced to him through another friend. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking she had cleaned some properties for him. But they had only talked to each other really on Facebook. Yeah. So I don't think they really knew each other. But I'm not sure if he did if she did some jobs before, before this one or not. Cleaning some real estate property. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking she did, but I could be wrong. But they uh, went back to Todd's property. Yeah, to, to, do, to do some work there. And she said that uh, you know he had called and wanted them to go on a certain date. And uh, she said that you could bring whoever you want to with you, you know. And so she was going to take another friend because uh, because Charlie had to work. And so when he found out that Charlie had to work, he's like, "Well, we can just reschedule it for another time," you know. Mm-hmm. So he intentionally made sure that it was going to be him and her that came on the same day yeah because he wanted him there yep and th- when they got there it seemed like everything was pretty professional yeah todd was um separate the part where he pulled up to the fence and opened the gate and drove in and then got out and locked the gate back yeah but Which other than that of, they said everything was pretty professional uh todd was you know talking business mm-hmm. what all they needed to do and straightforward like yeah always. yep but Kayla Brown and, like we said, and her boyfriend, Charlie Carver, they went missing after they went to clean Todd's residence. Yep. Well, after they pulled in and locked the gates, right, they drove down. She said was, they probably parked about, a, you know, 150 feet from the big, the two-story uh, building that he had. And uh, he told them, you know, he described what he wanted them to do. He wanted them to go in and clean out some underbrush. And he went in the shed. He came out. He gave uh, each of them a pair of hedge clippers and a bottle of water. And said, uh, oh, hang on a second, got to get one more thing. And he went back in the building. She said, I was just standing there holding Charlie's hand. We were just standing there. And that's when he came back out the door with a gun and shot Charlie in the chest three times. Bam. 
just point blank. Mm-hmm. He got around behind her, put his arm around her like in a choke. choke. Yep. Yep. And uh, told her if, if she didn't want to be the same, if she fought or resisted, that uh, she had joined Charlie. Mm-hmm. He took her inside and basically told her that uh, she was going to, he wasn't going to kill her. He wasn't going to rape her. He said, but uh, she had to do what he said or she had joined him. And um, I think he had a fascination with the, yeah, he did. With her. Yeah. With Kayla. And he knew that uh, the only way to get somebody to really uh, to keep, take control of somebody is to take take someone they love out. Mm-hmm. To make sure you know he was serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so then that's when he uh, put handcuffs on her behind her back and put ankle cuffs on her. And put her in a storage container. He took her to the storage container, opened it up, walked her all the way to the back, put a chain around her neck. Like a dog. Yep. Had her, it was like a, she said it was about a three-foot chain hooked in one corner and then her ankle hooked to the other corner. So she couldn't really go nowhere except for her on his little whatever she had to lay on, mm-hmm. if anything. And said that he left her there from, and left and then uh, come back in a couple hours and, and talk to her again. Yeah, and he'd, he would feed her about once a day. Yeah, once or twice. Said he would come about between uh, 10 and 1 or something like that and he would take her, unchain her, but he still left her handcuffed and stuff. But he would un- unchain her from the wall, take her out of the storage container, take her over to the to the uh, two-story building, and go upstairs. There was a bed up there that had chains hooked to it. And then uh, he would uh, feed her and then do whatever he wanted to sexually. Yep. And then uh, take her and lock her back up. And she pretty much – and she would tell him when she didn't want to do something. And uh, he would almost – respect that in a way i guess well he told her this is the way he did he told her that he didn't he he didn't rape nobody he wasn't gonna rape her if she said no you can say no he said but she all he also made sure that she knew that she was there for a reason and if she was no longer useful yeah then she she would no longer be there yeah so right she probably didn't say no a whole lot now it was about this time kayla brown and charlie carver's family they got to be concerned yeah, nobody had heard from them. Nobody had heard anything from them. And all they were getting in return were Facebook messages. They wasn't getting nothing for a while. And then all of a sudden they started popping up, I think. Yeah. We're really weird. Messages saying that they they were happy, they had gotten married, and they bought a house. And they pretty much wanted to be left alone. Yeah. Some weird stuff. Yeah, and it just didn't sound like anything Kayla or Charlie would do. Right. And plus... uh I think it was Kayla's mom had found her beloved Pomeranian yeah. left at the house by itself, no food, no water, and it was in pretty bad shape. When she and found. that dog's name was Romeo. Oh, Romeo. Yep. Yeah. And so, that, yeah, that was her baby. Yeah, so they, they knew something was up. And it, it went so far, I'm not sure how long this went on, but I know her mom went and actually made sure rent was paid at the place. And eventually, after that, had went and taken the stuff out and put it in storage. Mm-hmm. So they, it's a bit... She was put up for a pretty good while. Yeah, she was put up from in that storage container for almost two months. Damn. But then, then you know, he would come that early in the morning, and then she said he'd come back again at between 5 and 7 and feed her and take her to the barn and do what he wanted to do and take her, put her back up. Now, Dale, all these Facebook messages and Facebook posts, they were being done from Todd Colehead's property. Right. So they got to tracing these messages. Yeah, and, checked the ping on the phone. Oh, yep, yeah. and... And they were coming from his property. Yep. And they got to staking it out. They even flew a helicopter over once or twice to see what the property looked like. Well, it said that uh, they had got a tip from somebody that said that that girl was buried on a 100-acre property. 
property and, and they got to searching around in that area and there was only one plot of land that was that big mm-hmm. and it belonged to Todd Coheep. Mm-hmm. So that's when they started checking around and they actually flew a helicopter over, but they didn't see nothing. They were looking for his car. You know, he had a white, I think it was Pontiac Grand Am or Grand Prix or something. And they were flew over the property and they didn't see anything except for that, that big building. Yeah. I don't know if they could see the storage shed or not because it was kind of camouflaged, but you know, the big building was pretty, you know, it was cleared out a little bit in the middle of all them woods. Yeah. And uh, about two weeks later, that's when they get a search warrant for that property. Yeah. And they show up and they're going around the property and that's when they find that storage container, that storage locker. Yeah. They actually got two warrants, one for his house and one for this property. Yeah. And, uh, their plan was to serve them both at the same time. Show up at both properties at the same time. they knew wherever they found him, they would hold him while they were searching the other. Yeah. And when they get to that 100-acre property and they find that storage container, they're nosing around, and they hear some clanging coming from inside that storage right. container. Yeah, I think they searched the, the big barn first and said they went upstairs, and when they seen that bed with the chains on it, they knew something was up. Yeah. And uh, so they got to looking, but they didn't find anything in there, you know, nothing that was really out of the ordinary or whatever. And then when they seen the storage locker, they went over and was messing around it, and that's when they started hearing the bumping, like you said. Mm-hmm. And uh, said they were, like, and said one of the detectives went around the side and actually knocked on the side. When he knocked, they knocked back. Yeah. And that's when you could hear, you know, the, started making a bunch of noise, and they actually went back into Todd's own barn there and got some tools to cut it open. Yeah. To said it had, it said it had a like I think, a low torch to get into it. Yeah, I think it had five locks on it. So yep. he knew something in there was pretty important. Yeah. So it was kind of odd. It had five different locks on it. Mm-hmm. So when they cut it open, it went in there, and there she was chained up in the back of that thing. Yep. Then we've got that audio clip of her being rescued right here. Okay, cool. Yes. Pull that one first. All right, let them get ready. Everybody, Y'all ready? Everybody. Come on. It's jammed in here. Give me that crowbar back. Where's that? Here, pump it Get that off, big crowbar right here. Right Watch out, y'all move. I got it, watch out. Hey, Joey. Joey, Sheriff's 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 Hold up, y'all slide back. Hold on. He's, He's got, got a light. Picture, we got a light. Picture, Randy, let, okay. let me see your light, Randy. You can, you can put your hand down, sweetheart. You're okay. We're here, okay? Yes, sir. Y'all sit back. Please. Light on or off? You're fine. We'll get the rest of it here. Let's get her out of here. Okay. We're getting bolt cutters, honey. Don't, don't. You got pictures of the cuffs? No, hold on. Bolt cutters. Is both feet? Just one. Let me it's see. Attached to a chain from okay. the wall, okay. and my neck's attached to the wall up here. Okay. All right. All right. We're gonna get you out some more, okay? You got a handcuff here. I got no. Mine's in my car. I got no. Mine's in my car. Go ahead. 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 Go
Yeah, you got some gloves on when I did that, but don't. No big deal. Bolt cutter. No big deal. Just hit, hit the chain right there. Loose. Hold it up. Yeah. Just no, just right there at her hand, Brandon. We'll we'll get it off. We'll get it off here. Cut it right here. Do you know where your buddy is? Charlie. Yes. He shot him. He shot him. Who did? Todd Colehep shot Charlie Carver three times in the chest, wrapped him in a blue tarp, put him in the bucket of the tractor, locked me down here, and I never seen him again. Okay. He says he's dead and buried. He says there's several bodies dead and buried out here, and he okay. says that the dogs will be ruined if they go looking because there's red pepper. We're going to step you out, sweet dog, because there's what? Red pepper. Okay. Okay. Tell the dog people that. He says no, there's pepper everywhere around the All right. Man, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Don't you know? You know, I, I watched some, uh, some. And she, the the tone of her voice. I mean, she is so calm and collected after being in there for two months. Yeah, you know, well, cause she didn't really have much to think about, just trying to stay alive. Yeah, and she thought, you know, and said, you know, at first she always said that he had told her, "Don't say nothing. Don't don't be making any noise if you hear anything out here. Because if you do, I'll kill both of you, whoever's outside." And so, when she first heard the, the noise outside, she was scared to say anything, and then she said she thought she heard somebody say keep searching in her or we got to find her or something like that. Yeah. And that's when she said to hell with it. I'm taking a chance to start beating on the things. Cause you know, she was, she was gagged too. So she couldn't say a whole lot of stuff. So she uh, was beating on the walls and everything. And uh, that's when, it was, you know, when she said, as soon as the door cracked open and she seen the police uniforms, that's when she finally had a little bit of relief. Cause she was worried, you know, is this a trick and is he going to come in here and shoot me? You know, cause you know, the whole time really he was trying to, to turn her he wanted his in his mind he was going to get her to be his partner he told her if she was good he was you know he was going to eventually train her and she could be his partner he thought if he kept her long enough that stockholm syndrome would kick in and, mm -hmm. and she would just you know come on over and be be with him yeah. so he was kind of delusional into thinking eventually you know they were going to be together and i think that was his downfall luckily for her yeah and like we said and if you listen to that uh, clip it said you know she even said that you know charlie had been was killed and two others have been killed and buried on that property also yep and, and then the blockbuster yep she even told about him going into the super biker shop yep and killing four people there and said he was said what was it uh, a couple of years back he went in the motorcycle shop and killed four people and they don't know nothing yeah it was like 13 years earlier yep and they didn't know anything so really, if if this girl don't survive, they still never solved that. Not the superbike, no, mm. no, none of it. So luckily, he kept her for this long. I think you know he was like you said, really infatuated with this girl, and he really thought that you know eventually they would be together. And police did find two more bodies on Todd's property. It was twenty nine year old Johnny Coxey yep. and twenty six year old wife Megan Coxey. Right. And like I said, they had been reported missing since uh, before Christmas of. 2015 year. Yeah. yeah and uh they did find uh charlie's car he had uh you know it was white but he had covered it in some stain brown stain and put bags of dog food in it and pushed it down in his ravine and covered it up with brush and he put dog food in it so animals would come in and tear up the inside of it so nothing would be that's, that's smart yeah and all the bodies he buried he covered in red pepper so the dogs wouldn't be able to smell them even if they're decomposing they wouldn't be able mm -hmm. to smell they wouldn't nobody ever found them he was the one who killed the people at the super bikes he had uh, he told his story he had went there years ago and bought a bike but he didn't really know how to ride 
and he was trying to teach himself how to ride a bike, and it wasn't working out too good. So he said he went back down there about a week or so after that. and He was a dork on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he went back, there, went back down there to talk to him to see if maybe he could, in his words, trade it for a small one or maybe get him to take it back. Yeah. And they didn't really want to do that. So they kind of, I think they kind of ridiculed him a little bit and laughed at him, you know, then why are you buying a bike and you can't ride a bike and this kind of thing? Well, they made of, fun of him. They did. They made fun of him. And it hurt his feelings. It hurt him bad. And all he knows how to do is be angry. Yeah. So this ain't going to work out well. Mm-hmm. So a couple of days later, the bike gets, I'm, I'm air quoting, stolen from. Supposedly stolen. <laughs> stolen from the front of his, his apartment house or whatever. Well. He kept going back down to the bike place and hanging out. He would go down there and look around, and I guess he's just casing the place the whole time. And uh, he went down there this on that one particular day and uh, said that he had left college. He had stopped at the, uh, at the Walgreens, got out and put on his shoulder holster, put his gun in the shoulder holster, and went down to Superbikes. So he walked in, and there was a, a couple customers in there, he said so, and one of the employees weren't there at the time. So he just looked around and browse the shop and looked at different places and just waited until everybody was there when once the uh for he said the collateral damage he didn't want none of that so he waited till all the paying customers had gone the other employee had come back so he picked out a, a 600 anyway a 600 something kawasaki or suzuki katana whichever one that is i'm, I'm sure i'm sorry i don't know but anyway told him he would take it so uh they took it to the back back there to start working on it to get it prepped to go and uh, when they took it to the back said he kind of they were working on it so he walked back out to the back when the mechanic Chris sat down to start working on it he said he drew his gun and shot him twice in the back shot him, uh, he shot him twice once through each lung yeah and he said yep that ought to take care of him you know he said uh, I mean when he wasn't moving he said because uh, if he can shoot man twice once through each lung and he gets up I'd be impressed That's that was what he said so then he started making his way back toward the front of the building, and when he opened the door between the, the shop and the middle there where the offices was, that's when he ran into all three of them. He ran into uh, Scott, um, Brian, and his mom. They were basically all right in front of him. Yeah, Beverly was coming out of the restroom. And he shot Beverly right there. Mm-hmm. Shot her twice. And then at this time, Brian and Chris, no, Brian and Scott take off running for the door, and so he just uh, shoots he just starts pulling the trigger, and he hit uh, Brian in the back, and he dropped. He said, this time I tactically reloaded my gun, and that's why you'll find different shell casings. He said, so he, he reloaded and uh, went on, and he shot uh, Brian again and went out the door, and he shot Scott uh, twice in the parking lot. Running across the parking lot. And he said he walked over him, and he looked down, and he shot him in the forehead to make sure he's dead. And he said, this time I went back through the – back through the scene and I shot each of them in the forehead to make sure they was all dead he said I cleared that building in 30 seconds and uh, he was really bragging to the police when he was saying all this yeah, he the said, police I mean they were they were being buddies with him to get to, get all this to, yeah, they were out of him buddy him up to talk all this and he oh, said yeah. yeah you guys have been proud of me I cleared that you know he said that was a big Jeez. building it was 10,000 square foot and I cleared it in under 30 seconds he was so arrogant man mm. but that's that's what happened at Superbikes and if this girl don't live nobody ever knows yeah if, if Kayla yeah. hadn't been rescued it was yeah. a quadruple murder never solved. Exactly. Now, getting to the legal proceedings and guilty pleas, Dale, Todd Colehead was charged with four counts of murder in the Chesney Superbike shootings. Right, and yeah, because when they, you know, the, I said we, uh, they had the two search warrants. You know, while they were searching his property, they, they went to his house, and that's where he was. You yeah. know, and they, they, so they went ahead, and they just called over and told him, go we, ahead and hook him up. We got everything. Yeah. 
So they had him in custody right there. Yep. And he was also uh, charged on one count of kidnapping in relation to Caleb Brown's abduction. And he was later charged with three additional counts of murder in the murders of uh, Charlie Carver and Megan Coxey, uh, along with one additional count of kidnapping and three counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Mm-hmm. And Todd Colehep's next court appearance was January the 19th, 2017, where his attorney waived their right to appearance. So he didn't even show up. Now, according to a report, relatives of the Chesney shooting, this was the the superbike shop, right. they filed a wrongful death suit against him. And on December the 1st, it was announced that uh, Caleb Brown also filed a civil lawsuit against him. Well, we got everything they did. Yep. Now, on uh, May the 26th, 2017, Todd pleaded guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of criminal sexual assault, and was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole in a plea bargain that uh, spared his life from the, the capital punishment. Yeah, yeah, according to Scott's wife, they, they, uh, they all got together and decided, you know, if we sign off on this, then we know he's never getting out and he's getting seven counts. And if we try to give him the death penalty, then it's going to be appeals and we'll be in court for the next 10 years and we can do this now and it'll be done. Yep. Yeah. And uh, he agreed to some of this plea bargaining. Uh, there was a something about a photograph um, that he was able to give to his mom and some of the money. Yeah, something about a horse, I think. A picture oh. of a horse or something? Yeah, I think it was. Some art, I think. Yeah, yeah. a piece of artwork. And there's also some money that was transferred to a friend's he wanted uh, child's to, uh, college fund. Yeah, his girlfriend. He wanted to make sure some of the money was taken out and, and to give to his girlfriend for to take care of that that child. Mm-hmm. And whether she wanted to take it from him after she learned all this, I don't know. But he tried to do a, a couple of things there. He wanted them to, you know. And he said, if you do these couple of things, then basically he took them and showed them where the bodies were on his property and some other stuff. So it was kind of a little trade out kind of thing. Yeah, but you know now, Dale. This is, it ain't funny, but it kind of is. Now, shortly after Todd's arrest, the Spartanburg County authorities discovered, they discovered a number of kind of jokingly product reviews on Amazon. Hmm. And it was like for various items such as padlocks, shovels, tasers, gun accessories, and much things like that. And it was, it was by a user simply known as me. And one of the reviews was about a padlock stated, Solid locks have five on a shipping container. Won't stop them, but sure will slow them down until they get too old to care. And there's another one for a folding shovel that read, keep in car for when you have bodies to hide. And you left your full-size shovel at home. Yeah. Does not come with a midget, which would have been nice. Yep. (laughs) And the reviewer's wish list page was listed as Todd Colehep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, now, you know, he did say some stuff in his interrogation where he said he tried to spin it on uh, Kayla saying that, you know, she was submissive and she wanted to he she wanted to have his permission to look at him and have her, her his permission to do this and he had actually bought a collar, some kind of a metal collar with the loops on the outside because she rather really wanted a collar around her neck instead of having that chain. Mm-hmm. And, he had, and he said, yeah, he can't beat Amazon Prime two days, but he never did put it on her. He said, you know, I ain't put that on her because I wouldn't do that to my dog. Yep. What a 
piece of shit this dude is. Yep. Now, on November 25th, 2016, police in Greer, South Carolina, announced that they had named Todd Colep as a person of interest in an unsolved 2003 bank robbery and triple homicide at the local Blue Ridge Savings Bank. Now, Dale, this crime was separated from the Chesney shootings, which was the, the super bike shop, by six months. Hmm. But as of May 16, 2018, no link between Todd Colehip and the killings at the bank were established. But Todd did deny any involvement in the case. And it, it, yeah, it just don't seem like it. It doesn't seem it's like It's not his M.O. Yeah. Because, you know, if he's robbery, he took all that money at the Superbikes. Yeah, exactly. Now, he also did admit where he said that he, back when he was uh, 14 years old of killing a guy in Arizona, he said that uh, he and a friend were walking out of an alley and, and some guy come up and shot his friend. And uh, he said he didn't know the guy's name, but he knew he drew a uh, drew he uh, drove a gray Nova, and uh, he hunted that guy down and killed him. And that would, if that was true, that would have happened before he ever kidnapped that that girl, you mm-hmm. know. So that's never been proven true, but that's something else he admitted to while being interrogated. So, but who knows if it's true or not? Earlier, I'd said something about uh, the investigator they hired. You know that he thought it was a disgruntled customer. And uh, after all this come out, you know, they found out that uh, they never did go through that list. And Todd's name was on the customer list at the Superbikes. So if they would have went back then. They would have found him. They would have found him. Yeah. Now, I don't know if they could have proved he did it at that time, but they, his name was on the customer list. And so the investigator was dead on right there, but it was never, they never did go through it. Yep. As far as I know. Now, on... Uh, April 23rd, 2017, Dale, uh, Todd Colehep's mother, Regina Ann Tagg, was found deceased in her Moore home, South Carolina, and she'd had a long-time illness. Mm. Yep. And the sheriff's office announced that there were no plans to have Todd, Todd see his mother's body before, you know, or even attend the funeral. Right. August of just this year, Dale, 2020, some of Todd Colehep's belongings went to auction and proceeds were donated to the victim's families. Right. Just this year. So, you know, this is still, still going on. Stuff related to Todd, Todd Colehep. Well, I hope they get everything they can get. Yep. Me too. And that's, that's pretty much... Uh, Where is he at? In Columbia? Uh, Todd Colehep is in prison at the Broad River Correctional Institute in Columbia, South Carolina. That's all Where he will remain the rest of his life. Right. And that's it. That's uh, the story of Todd Colehep. Yeah, I guess that about wraps it up. All right, Dale. We're going to get out of here. All right, man. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is The The Crack Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.